This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you now for an hour of science and in the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Pretending to be sporty. <laughs> po- uh, pre-sporty. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, folks, uh, you can't see it, but she came in wearing all this gym gear, like, you know, making the rest of us feel bad, but we know that she just put it on two minutes ago. <laughs> just to make everybody feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> now, I feel like I should put, like, a, a, a sort of little fence between you, Dr. Laura, and Dr. Lauren, so I don't mix those these names. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should have had Dr. Ray sitting in between in us. So that yeah. Would, yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, because then he would just call me Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> morning, you two. <laughs> How are you going? Oh, morning, Dr. Shane. Yeah, you well? I am, actually. Uh yeah. And Lauren? Uh, yes, very well. A bit jet-lagged. I, I got in from Europe on Friday night, Saturday morning. I'm not sure when. I'm, yeah, a bit discombobulated. <laughs> good. Excited to be here. So. <laughs> That's good. Well, you must be feeling the warmth. Uh, well, we've got this yes. beautiful warm day yesterday and today, so we're actually I doing know, pretty well. It's very strange. Yeah, As yeah. a, you know, carried summer back with me, I guess. Yeah. I'm well, not sure. I mean, <laughs> uh, next week it's cold again. Yeah. 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 Awesome. <laughs> Probably Should later on today it'll be yeah. cold again. <laughs> it's winter. You've got to enjoy the cold every now and then. Oh, now, it's a bit windy. Oh, yesterday yeah. was a Ted wind. You know, I'll tell you a funny story because, you know, as a physics guy, I really love this stuff. But I was driving down the, a, a street in my car and all of a sudden there's this almighty smash into the side of my car. I thought someone had hit me. It was actually a cardboard real estate sign. But when they hit you at about 80 kilometers per hour, they make an almighty bang. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I just, you know, loved it and then just kept on driving. But it's, uh, it was dangerous on the roads yesterday. I think, um, you know. You didn't want to be out. Did you have a so. dent in your car? I, I looked for one, but there wasn't one. Oh. I think it, because it hit it hit flat. Yeah. So it made that all big noise, you know, large surface area hitting a large surface area. So it was like a clap. and this, But, yeah, it was a piece of cardboard, so I was pretty lucky. Yeah. I thought, uh, yeah. Anyway, all fun. Let's get into some news. We'll start with news. you, uh, Dr. Laura. What do you got for us? Well, I've got, I've got some shocking news. You guys may have kind of read about this um, this week that um, – a new study's come out that shows there's a major decline in Western males' sperm count. We've still got a, a half of a shitload is still a shitload, as I say. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, this, so Interesting this, word choice. Um. <laughs> now, the decline in sperm in men in the Western world has been reported before, and studies have been widely criticised, you know, as it's come out that, you know, sperm's on the decline. But this study's different. It's really, it's really comprehensive. They, it's a sort of multi-international study. They screened more than 7,500. 500 different studies. Screamed? Screamed. Screamed. Sorry. <laughs> no. Screamed, not Screamed. Radiothonia. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they conducted deeper analysis on the most reliable studies out there, 185. So the study then involved more than 40,000 men. Um, really? Yeah. That's a lot of good. Yeah, so this, this sounds legit, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it sounds so, legit so far. Legit so far. It just doesn't sound Bear like it would be difficult to find participants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Depends who's running the study. Yeah. So... 
Um, what they found is that in men in America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, there is a 60% decline in sperm count over the last 40 years. Now, the reason why it's Western men and not non-Western men is because they just don't have the data on mm-hmm. sort of men in Asia and South Africa and so forth. But um, and the re- and the most scary thing about the study is that the rate doesn't seem to be on the decline. So you know, if you kind of extrapolate out, you know, within sort of you know, actually. You know, we're not completely heading for infertility because the range is still normal, so don't panic. Mm. WHO Mm. says sperm count between 15 to 200 sperm per milliliter is in the normal range. We're going down from 99% to 47%, so we're still in the normal range. But if it does keep going the way it's going, um, things aren't going to look good. So it's Western men because they just didn't survey everyone else. Yeah, exactly. But it could be linked to Western men because, of course, you know, what do we know about declining sperm counts? Obesity, chemicals... I was going to ask if it was fried yeah, yeah. food or tight <laughs> pants, but tight um, pants. Yeah. Yeah. Cell phones in pockets. Cell phones in pockets. I, yeah, I've heard. Yeah, I don't think that's science, but yeah. let's chuck it in there anyway. So yeah. this study, it just said the stats <laughs> didn't go into why. So we don't know if it's Western men and Western lifestyle, or just because they don't have the data on non-Western men. But one of the scary thing is not necessarily, you know. infertility but what we know is that men with a lower sperm count also have are associated with a you know they're more prone to early death more prone to higher incidence of cardiovascular disease and so generally what the trend is telling us is that people are becoming less healthy Mm. see a whole other ears just pricked up as you said that i mean for most of us going you know half of a bucket load still a bucket load we're okay or if you've already got your kids you're like yeah yeah. and i was going to say you know one because the i i put up a chart on their facebook site which has been heavily redistributed which was the 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 biggest the worst thing you can do in terms of contribution to climate change is have a child because the the flow and effects are you know huge Mm -hmm. so this could be good (laughs) for that if we can cut it back a bit you know but uh yeah. So, what, but what does this? I mean, what does this mean ultimately? Is this just one of those measures where you say, okay, in ten thousand years we'll be in trouble, or is it one of those it's things not, that we? But it's not ten thousand years. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll pretty much be by twenty sixty on the low end of mm. you know low sperm count by twenty sixty, unless say if they do, it, you know, further studies do link this to you know factors such as pesticides, obesity, so forth. Maybe this is something that we can turn back. Yeah. So the, I think this mm. is the wake up call. In the meantime, invest in shares in boxer short companies. <laughs> I suspect it's probably a good way to, you know, because yep. that's going to start, you know, that's the advice everyone gets. Boxes. Don't wear tight pants. Yeah, don't wear tight <laughs> really? pants. Yeah. yeah. Makes, didn't you know that? Makes uh, a big difference. I think I've heard, yeah, I just wouldn't think we about, about it. About yeah, it. I was going to say. <laughs> Even most say. guys don't think about it until a doctor yeah, yeah. says. Hey, yeah, you, got, yeah. you need to loosen things up yeah. down there. All right, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lauren, what do you go for? I can us? follow that one up. Um, well, you know, I feel like I read quite a lot of science news about the human brain that really um, sort of catches my attention and really amazes me. But I can honestly say that this is the first bit of science news that I've read about the dragonfly brain that has caught my attention. So um, there's a study published this week, and they sort of got, uh, initially, they got the reader to imagine that, you know, you're in a crowded sports stadium and your teammate is throwing you a ball. So to successfully catch this ball, you have to block out all of this surrounding movement, you know, mm-hmm. which is, you know, people in the stands or your teammates. You have to follow the trajectory of the ball and you have to predict where it's going to be so that you can reach out and catch it. 
All right, so it sounds really complicated, but it's actually, you know, thankfully an automatic process that your brain does. And that's actually fairly well studied in um, mammals at, you know, sort of a high level. But how mammals actually encode this predictive process at the single neuron level is relatively unknown. Mm. So that's what this study wanted to answer. So there's a study published this week that wanted to look into this further, and they investigated um, specific target-detecting neurons, um, cleverly called small target motion detecting neurons in a specific <laughs> type of dragonfly found in Australia. So these neurons make it possible for the dragonflies to focus on a small object, so like a moth or other types of prey that they might be chasing, as the object moves um, across a complex background, which basically just means um, in a normal environment, a moth would be moving against anything other than a white background. Um, and so these neurons make it possible for the dragonfly to focus on that as it's moving. And so these researchers found that not only did the neurons simply follow the moth, but that they also were able to predict its future location, So, which is not quite originally what they thought. And so they came to this conclusion because the neurons showed increasing sensitivity to movements just ahead of the target's current position. So, for example, in real mm. life, you've got a moth, you know, and you're, you're tracking because you want to eat it, and the moth disappears behind a leaf. And so the, the neurons were tracking that moth until it disappeared behind the leaf. But then what they also found, because they were looking at the, the sensitivity of these neurons, is that even when the moth disappeared behind the leaf, the neurons kept extrapolating the, that position and sort of gave the dragonfly a heads up to be yeah. like, oh, hey, that moth is going to appear here. Appear so the other you side. Should, yeah, yeah, so you should appear on that. You should go over there if you want some lunch. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's, I, I thought it was really interesting. And so this demonstrates actually that the insect brain can perform visual tasks, which we really only thought previously that mammals could do. Mm. And so it's pretty amazing considering that insects and mammals um, last shared a common ancestor around about 500 million years ago. See, dragonflies to me, I mean, they were around in some form around the time of the dinosaurs. And they're one of those, one of those species that you find that to me just said, you know, evolution's coming along, it's changing everything else. And they just said, you know what, we're like crocodiles, we'll get it right. Bugger off. <laughs> we do not need to evolve further. Yeah, because they, they are just these, you know, we've got four wings, bugger off. You know, yeah. we're, we're good. And they've just, you know, ch relatively unchanged, I assume. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm not an expert on dragonflies, but, oh, yeah. but it seems as though they're relatively unchanged. They haven't completely morphed into something else. Yeah. And, and it seems like this sort of stuff says, yeah, they're just that good at, at being a predator. Yes. Mm. I'm more amazed that on the neuron level, it's predictive for mm. basically physics. Yeah. <laughs> and how would that work if you put everybody in microgravity? Would it predict the possible? I mean, of course, they wouldn't fly. But, uh, you know, would, would, you know, if you change gravity, would the prediction still work? Well, so it's, it's, you, you think about the, the, the visual elements of the dragonfly. And this is sort of, it's probably predicting in a, in a 2D plane more than a 3D plane. So, like, if you started mm -hmm. introducing high winds and things like that, probably get it wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. you, you're right, Dr. Ray. Like, in, the two, in a 2D plane, it would work pretty well because they see this thing going past and they head towards it side on or from above or whatever. As soon as you get into a three-dimensional scenario where some of those innate rules are removed, then it might just fail. It might just yeah. fail straight up because gravity is not involved. But then, of course, moths don't really feel gravity in the same way a, a falling stone or a something does yeah they but, uh, swim through the air effectively so yeah I, I, don't, I don't know if they really want dragonflies and moths bumping around on the international space station it's worth, uh, <laughs> are it going to be worth a crack just yeah. to see if this is true <laughs> see, <laughs> see yeah. how predictive these little buggers are because they're, they're pretty cool yeah well they actually think that it could be like have potential applications in um, <coughs> artificial vision systems yeah. so they mentioned uh, the self-driving cars that we were talking about mm. um, a couple of weeks mm. ago now which I think is really yeah really amazing so yeah. like an understanding of this at a fundamental level could potentially because they so absolutely really have to have predictive you yeah. know, correlation software that can can work that stuff out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Dr. Ray, Dr. Shane, I am. Um, I'm. I, uh, I. This study caught my eye because I had to 
learn a word to understand it. Um, this is researchers from Stanford and Princeton University, and the title of the article was Eutrophication Will Increase During the 21st Century as a Result of Precipitation Changes. Precipitation? Yeah, no, no, I got that one. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I got Remember, that one. <laughs> I've even seen snow. Um, so, uh, but eutrophication is the increase of nutrients in a body of water uh, normally due from runoff that actually causes dense growth of plant life. Mm. And so this is, this is about runoff problems. Now, um, what I also, I, I didn't really make the connection. This is a, a study that was looking at runoff for estuaries, coastal and tidal areas. And so when you worry about runoff and causing algae blooms, and, and so first you get algae bloom, but then the algae then eats up all the nutrients, then it starts to die, it decays, and you get hypoxia, which is a decrease of oxygen in those tidal and estuary areas. Now, that's a problem because that's where fish spawn. Mm. And then the water doesn't have as much oxygen in it, and decaying algae is about as smelly as decaying fish. Yep. Um, so not, not a, a great impact. Um, I didn't realize this, or I, I guess I never thought about it. Freshwater? You worry about phosphorus runoff. Okay. But in salt water, you worry about nitrogen runoff because that's what actually drives the algae bloom. Yep. And so this study, when, you know what, people have looked at and modeled and seen algae blooms on the increase. But whenever they've looked at modeling it from a climate change standpoint, they always look at a basin. They look at Fort Pillip Bay. They, mm-hmm. they, they, mm-hmm. they look at one little area. So this group at Stanford and Princeton used 21 different climate change models to look at the precipitation models for the entire U.S., Wow. And, and they, they put it all together, and they had this nice correlation between precipitation and runoff uh, and, and increase in nitrogen, and looked at predictions for um, 30 years and end of the century for the entire U.S., all the coastal regions. Uh, and then they, they kind of classified it as they said, well, we'll do three scenarios. We'll do mediation. We'll do stabilization, which is doing a little bit, but not too much, and then business as usual. The business as usual predictions say that on average, around the U.S., you're going to see a nitrogen increase in tidal and estuary areas by 20% by the end of the century. That is huge. That's, that's, mm. Not, mm. That, that's not climate change. That's completely changing ecosystems because yeah. you'll have way more algae. Um, the mitigation e- estimates are to stop that. You'd need to reduce nitrogen use from runoff by about 33% nationally. Right. Yep. And that is an unbelievable management. Because, you know, fertilizers are why we're able to feed the planet. Yeah. And, and so the runoff challenge is just, I never thought about this one. You think about climate change as things getting hotter, things getting colder. But this is basically around increase. You think more rain is good. But remember, we're getting more rain in places where we didn't. And we're getting a lot more extreme weather events, which are huge mm. as amount of rain, mm. which drive downloads. And it's uh, a lot more runoff. And so it was trying to say, well, here's this part of climate change. What's the follow-on effect? And... Uh, doesn't look great. Uh, yeah. and, and as a credit to them, they actually then took this mont quite as detailed, but looked globally and think China, Southeast Asia and India are going to have similar problems on a similar scale. It just I, I still wonder there's got to be sort of tipping points in that in that stuff, you know, where you, when you said 20 percent is a really big issue. But is 11 percent where it really starts to kick in? There's, there's there must be some sort yeah. of you know, thresholding in, in that. It's not, it wouldn't be a linear system, you would think. Well, no, I, I doubt it is. And, and I think there's a real challenge in predicting when algae blooms will happen. Mm, yeah. Because uh, it, it's, it's dependent on a couple things. But All so, sorts of things, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. the more nutrients there, the more likely that is to happen. So, yeah, yeah it could just be getting it up by 10% might be enough to make it a terrible really problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
what can I say? Um, time for a break. It's, it's depressing. I was going to um, say, if it wasn't for the dragonflies, we're just giving everyone bad news this morning. Yeah. I know. Well, I mean, I wasn't too concerned about the sperm thing until you said it affected our health as well. Oh. Now, you know, gee, we're going to have to start worrying about that. Three. Triple. In the studio with us now is Linda MacGyver. She's the Head of Learning and Digital Technologies at the John Monash Science School. Linda, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Now, we, we found you because you've been uh, listed as one of these superstars of STEM, yes? Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. What, what is a superstar of STEM? Um, that's it, an awkward title. It's kind of weird introducing yourself as a superstar. <laughs> um, you have but, to wear an outfit. <laughs> well, it doesn't come with a cape, although yeah. I've been talking with Nikki Ringland, Ringland, who's one of the other superstars, and we think we need to design a cape, um, right. but no underwear on the outside. Um, the, the aim of it is to train up some female scientists to um, be more media savvy, to tell better stories, and really to engage with the media, to put female scientists up sort of in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I applied for that because computer science is a fairly male-dominated field, um, and it's also in high schools, it's it's underrepresented. I mean, we have so few computer science teachers. Yeah. Um, so I felt like I needed a bigger megaphone, get the idea out there that computer science and computation is for everybody. Yeah. It, it seems um, it seems odd, doesn't it? In when you, I think back to when I was at school a little while ago. And the Apple IIc had just been released. It was awesome. And back then, you know, there was this excitement about the use of computers in schools and so forth, and it was just starting. But we haven't really gone a long way in terms of making sure that every school has a dedicated teacher, all of that sort of stuff, have we? It's, you know, in a lot of ways, we've gone backwards. Yeah. I, I, I find it inexplicable. Uh, computer science um, classes at universities now have less women than ever before. Yep. Um, schools teach... ICT, but it's it's formatting Word documents, yeah. and so the the experiences people have with tech are either boring or frustrating. Yeah. Microsoft Word, enough said. Um, <laughs> and nobody comes through with this idea that tech is actually relevant and it's interesting and it's fun, and that's what we really need to change. Yeah. So at my son's school, we, primary school, you know, I'm the school council president, and me and the school principal there, we're both crazy. We we built a coding room you know, for the students at the school. And they just love it. The kids can't get enough of it. But it's, it's you know, it's real stuff. They're, they're coding up real stuff. They're not using Microsoft Word or any other program that might be, a you know, such a thing. Um, they, are, they are doing real things, robotics, all sorts of stuff, and they just absolutely love it. They really do. And if you get them young enough, then they, they just get inspired and they realise that this is something they can do and it's something that's fun and they can do, as you say, real stuff. There's just mm. nothing more important than giving people real relevant things to do. Mm. And there's no reason you can't be doing that in primary school. Now, you're taking your students a bit further though, aren't you? Because you're actually getting them to interface with actual researchers. Yeah, so that's the, that's the thing that I just love about my job. It's an opportunity because a lot of scientists never got taught computation as part of their training. Um, so they've had to kind of. <laughs> yeah, look at this three. <laughs> awesome. Dr. Ray, I think. Oh, no, computer no, he's science. Okay. Computer, I learned Pascal in high school. Yeah, yeah. Computer yeah. science. See, Dr. Ray and I are okay, but these, these newer ones over Do here we've got. And it's so common. Um, So we get to, my year 11s have pretty good computational skills and we get to work with scientists to meet their data needs because they often know enough to know that they need computation but maybe don't have the skills or the time to actually create software to do their work for them. They're often doing things by hand and uh, or as one of my friends says, 
in Excel, which amounts to by hand. Um, so, so, so you you must have a scenario. So I'm just trying to paint a picture here, where you take some year eleven student, sixteen, seven year old, and you get them to help someone like Dr. Laura, who you yeah, know re- really, yes. you know, she, PhD. Excel. She's running <laughs> running a lab, has no clue about how to do anything with data. I'm sorry, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> a little harsh. Is that is that is that how yeah, it's, yeah, that's fabulous. So we can teach you, or we can write software to help you uh, if you have student. data needs. <laughs> yes, I, I'm just about to start the computational science assignment so we should talk um that you just pitch in to to provide the skills and the resources that scientists i mean we all know how much extra funding scientists have um, not yep. you can't afford to hire a computer <laughs> yeah, scientist yeah. but these guys love to do real stuff and actually get involved and um it's not always the kids who come in with amazing skills who do the most amazing projects it's just they get so inspired by the idea that they can do something to help something real has has it led to any of your students ending up on publications or things of that nature with the researchers are they appropriate in assigning uh credit uh it has on occasion, yeah, that was a, an amazing um, cancer research project in my first year of teaching at John Monash, um, and there have been papers out of that. I'm pretty sure they've been credited not as co-authors, but with um, having done the work. Yeah. Now, there's this myth out there, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this, that, you know, girls don't like this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it just sounds like bullshit, because I've come across a lot of women who are really good at this yep. in my career. Um, I mean, how does that play out in the classroom? I mean, do you, do you find that there is equal levels of interest or more? from No. Yeah? So, in my year 11 course, I still have a vast... Um, so, it's a, a voluntary course. It's optional, mm-hmm. and I have a vast... Um, gender imbalance. I think a lot of that is due to the fact that we haven't got the prior courses right yet and girls get a very strong message that this is not for them and they, they whether it's conscious or not, they take that in. I was really lucky because my cousin gave me his old Commodore 64 to play with when I was little Awesome. and I found out that it was fun before I found out that I wasn't supposed to be interested. <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible statement. It <laughs> is. Yeah, I yeah. mean, but that's, that's the yeah, state yeah, of the world. Reality, and things yeah. have got more gendered since then, not less gendered. Yeah. You know, if you look at toy sales and stuff, it's crazy. So um, you have to get them that experience that it's fun and relevant and something they can do before they find out that they're not supposed to be interested. Yeah, which is nonsense, the last yeah, part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, quick question. Um, so I actually tutor some girls in um, maths ages sort of 14 to 17. And is there any, I, I personally notice that they struggle with confidence for them. It's the, it's the confidence. And once, you know, I sort of work with them enough, they get to the point where they go, oh, like, I actually, I can. I can do maths and I love maths. And um, they've sort of gone on to do engineering and, and things at uni, which is amazing. But is there a certain, um, a certain age that, you know, that you kind of see that where it's sort of too late or that you need to kind of get them get their confidence up? Or? I don't think it's ever too late. I've worked with um, university students who thought they couldn't do it and discovered that they could. I've worked with scientists who thought they couldn't do it and discovered that they could. But it is much easier the earlier you get yeah. them. So I think if yeah. at primary school they discover this is something fun and they can do it, then you've, you've probably got 80% of the battle right there. And we only get our kids at year 10. They come into my school at year 10. And by that time, a lot of damage has been done. Yeah. They, the confidence is, is the issue. So, so, Linda, in terms of the education system in general, we can talk primary or, or high school, whichever you like. I mean, what would you like to see 
changing. I mean, we every every school in in Melbourne has a dedicated arts teacher. Yeah. You know, every school has a dedicated sports teacher, but but they don't have these other parts. I mean, I mean, what would you like to see as the answer to fixing this up? Having a dedicated computa- computation teacher is a fabulous dream, but we don't have the teachers. Like, mm. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. Um, the the biggest thing we need to solve right now is the the fear of technology among the teachers. Because they, you know, you have primary school teachers who are incredible at what they do, have been suddenly told they have to teach the new digital technologies curriculum, great curriculum, yep. but they're not given the training. Um, and so they're terrified. And, and I would be too in that scenario. Yeah. And the kids are probably more primed now than they have been in the past. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I've been quite disturbed by how much my four year olds worked out uh, that, they were, oh, really? You can do that? <laughs> you yeah. Know, so like you learn from them. Stuff. That's right. Yeah. So the kids are all over it. And that's even more daunting for the teachers. Yeah. I'm actually training my former students to train teachers to code to try right. to sort of start winning that. Um, that battle and help the teachers just if they just walk in confident and going this is fun and we can do this we're you know we're halfway there more than halfway there now just to finish how do people get involved if they're a researcher like laura who just knows absolutely nothing about (laughs) about you know data and computation sorry laura um (laughs) how would how would they get involved with um with your group and the the students there at at the school um well you can uh, contact John Monash Science School or me directly and we can start doing stuff. We've also got a year 10 data science course now where the students again work with real data and do visualizations and things to try to tell the story of the data. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge range of ways you can get involved with John Monash. Um, we've also got the Emerging Sciences Victoria which is an online school where we teach some of our more um, novel subjects online to teach uh, to students all around Victoria. So there's a bunch of different ways you can get involved. We've got large projects and stuff so contact the school and let's go yeah linda look it's great having you in you're one of those rare rare um gems that are around in the schools it'd be great to see a lot more of them and and hopefully people start to wake up to this but it's it really is something if we don't get on top of this we're going to be left behind i think as a oh as not a, just left behind but you know these kids are going to solve problems yeah. they, the, the massive problems we're solving are all going to be solved with technology so yeah. we've got to build that base yeah indeed linda mcgyver head of learning and digital technology at the john monash science school thanks so much for chatting to us thanks very much it was awesome now, on the phone, I believe we have Professor Jeff Faulkner. Jeff, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Getting a little bit of feedback there. Um, Jeff's from the University of Queensland and um, is working on some amazing stuff. Now, Jeff, you're one of the inaugural fellows of the $25 million program um, from CSL, yes? That's right, Shane. Tell us a bit about that. What does that mean? This is CSL's putting a huge investment into these programs. Yeah, they are. They're doing a terrific thing, I think, by Australian science. I mean, they're uh, giving these fellowships uh, two a year for $1.25 million each. Um, they're giving out two for 10 years. Mm. Um, so that's a terrific investment. Um, and it gives us, you know, as a scientist receiving that sort of award, it gives us tremendous stability for five years. It's great to have. Mm. Now, tell us a bit about your work, because this it just sounds extraordinary, this idea that our our brain, the DNA in our brain might be involved in memory. How did you, how did you come to this? Yeah, so my team's interested in, in uh, something called mobile DNA. And it's basically pieces of DNA that, that during life, uh, they copy themselves and they move uh, to another place in your genome or your genetic instructions. And the idea is that the DNA in the brain, as a result of this mobile DNA activity, the DNA actually changes uh, as you age. And so essentially the DNA in every cell in your brain, every neuron in, in your brain, I mean, is potentially unique, you know, and different to the cell next door. Mm-hmm. 
And does, I mean, what, what sort of information are we, we talking about? I mean, when we talk about memory, I guess I have this image of quite a lot of data and quite a lot of information. What, what are we talking about here, though? So what we're talking about here is, is essentially an address system. Just like the mail needs an address system, everything needs to be unique in order for your mail to find itself to the right place, you know, to be delivered to the right place. You need to have an address. And so what we think is that essentially these changes to the DNA make every cell unique. You know, it makes each neuron respond differently to electrical signals and therefore allows, to an extent, um, you know, the brain to generate what could be an address system that's used in memory. Um, this is Dr. Ray. I'm, I'm glad you said address system for memory. Do, do we understand how memory is stored in the brain? Is it every time you have a memory, you make a protein no, in a neuron? You know, no, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm not, not actually a neuroscientist. I'm a geneticist, but I mean, this is something that a lot of neuroscientists don't really agree on. You know, there's these five different explanations for how memory works and how memories are stored, how memories are recalled. You know, is, is everything essentially just, a, you know, triggered by something you see and then it allows you to remember something else? Um, we don't really know. Um, and so that's one of the more interesting things about this work. Mm. Now, Jeff, um, I know part of the interest for this is around um, diseases where we have problems with our memory, Alzheimer's in particular. How does this link up with that? Does this give us an idea of what's potentially causing Alzheimer's disease or uh, I suppose what could mitigate it? Yeah, so I, th I think something to be clear about is that this isn't something that's going to you know, result in a sort of short-term uh, benefit for Alzheimer's mm. patients. It's more geared at understanding how the disease comes about. And what we see is that this mobile DNA activity seems to be much less pronounced in uh, the brains of people who have died of Alzheimer's disease versus people who, who didn't die of Alzheimer's disease. So they have a lot less of this diversity uh, in the particular parts of the brain, but particularly on um, the areas of the brain that are involved in memory formation and storage. And so we think potentially that, that this phenomenon may actually be accelerating the process by which some of the brain cells are dying, uh, which is one of the main things, uh, main aspects of Alzheimer's disease is that you know, brain cells die. Mm. How do you know, I suppose what I, what I want to know here is how do you know that this is causal and not one of the effects in that scenario? So how do you know this is you know, the, these memory or the memory being stored in this way is not being stored correctly. How do you know it's not being damaged as a result of the Alzheimer's and that's what you're seeing? That's absolutely right. I mean, that's actually one of the things that the fellowship from CSR was intended to let us, you know, study. It was, it's a cause or effect, chicken or the egg, uh, because oftentimes you see things in science that are just consequences and you try to link it up as a cause, but it's not, it's a consequence. And so at the moment we just see it, we see this phenomenon, but we, we're not sure if it's causing the disease. And so one of the things we're, we're attempting in, as part of the work is to try to interfere with the, these uh, mobile DNA elements, you know, try to stop them working and then see what the effect is to try to tease apart the whole cause and effect problem. Mm. And what does this look like in the lab? I mean, how do you actually, how would you go about that? Do you, do you need a live brain to do this or are you, are you, you able to do this in a dish or something? So we work always, always we work with post-mortem brain samples mm -hmm. from people who have donated their brains to science uh, after they've died. Uh, and so what we do is essentially we sequence the genomes, the DNA of one cell at a time. So this is this massive, uh, massive advance that's occurred in the last five years in science where rather than needing billions of cells to sequence the DNA of an individual, we can sequence the whole genome of one cell uh, at a time in the lab. Mm. Uh, so this gives us an, uh, an opportunity to, to assess how the DNA in different cells is different um, because we can sequence that genome 
this, I say I can sequence this neuron from an Alzheimer's patient and I can sequence this neuron from an Alzheimer's patient and I can assess how they're different and are they different in parts of the genome that are important for Alzheimer's disease. This, this is, uh, you know, in that, so I hate to use this term, but in that realm of sort of paradigm shifts, I mean, you, you must be getting a fair bit of resistance to these set of ideas. Um, well, not, not really, actually, because I think we're, we're careful to say, look, we see these things, but we're still studying them. Mm. You know, we're not, we're not claiming for sure, oh, this is how it works. I mean, so this is something we should look at, um, but, you know, we're not making claims that this is the only... Certainly, we're not saying this is the only part of the puzzle. You know, obviously, yep. if you're looking at memory formation, there must be so many uh, ingredients to this complex um, puzzle, as it were. Uh, and so we, we're simply saying this is something worth looking at, uh, and we're going to study it further. Mm. Now, uh, Jeff, just before we let you go, I know the uh, applications are now open for the 2018 Centenary Fellowships from CSL. Uh, any advice to people applying? Uh, be bold. Be bold. I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's my advice. Be, be bold and don't be afraid to, to think of new things to look at. That yeah, that, that sounds good. Look, good luck with the work and uh, it's glad to hear. I, I love hearing when researchers have that stability in funding so they can stop thinking about funding for five minutes and actually do research. So I hope, I hope it goes well and um, this, this will be really interesting to see, see where it tracks. Great. Thank you. Professor Jeff Faulkner is from the University of Queensland and one of the recipients uh, of the inaugural fellows uh, in the $25 million program established by CSL, which is great. I think these, these things where you don't have to care about, you know, every five minutes a researcher is thinking about where, is that right? That's Laura? right. Yeah. Where's your money coming from? You, you like one that you should apply for one of these. You could apply for one of these. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, you never know, you know, it's just down the road. <laughs> Got to be bold though. Got to be bold. Three. Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks. It's all happening here in the studio. Dr. Laura is uh, she's trying to work out how many of those students she needs to help with her work. <laughs> she's struggling. We're giving her a lot of grief today. Uh, she's a good researcher, though, I think, aren't you? Yeah? I hope so. You're at the... Um, where are you? At the... Doherty Institute. Oh, that's right. Sorry, I was going to rip out the name of a, a cosmetics company for a second there, but I thought I might get sued, so oh. I held back. <laughs> Anyway, we, well, I love the cosmetics. You, you, you know, I've visited that institute. <laughs> oh, yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah the one in the yeah, States. Yeah. Yeah, the one in Huge Burgerstown. Cincinnati. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, you know, yeah, yeah. they're all over the world. Anyway, in the studio now, we have Courtney Innes. He's from La Trobe University. He's been on the show before. Courtney, welcome back to Triple R. Thanks. Good to be back. Now, uh, you work on uh, chemical reactions that happen out in the solar system, not out in the solar system, you're obviously out in Bandura, I assume, or the synchrotron. At the synchrotron well. Yeah, as well, yeah. next to Monash. Yep. Now, let's, uh, before we get into some of that work you're doing, I mean, you, you must be seeing, you know, I, I try to get people excited about what's going on at the moment with Saturn in particular and the, the flybys, the final series of flybys. That's it, only two more months. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what do you, when you hear some of this stuff, the data coming in, I mean, what, what's exciting you? Oh, particularly this last week, we've just seen yeah. some very interesting new molecules, not discovered by the Cassini mission, but actually from the ALMA telescope mm -hmm. in Chile, which yep. is a microwave telescope. They've seen vinyl cyanide, so acrylonitrile in the atmosphere, which was kind of inferred by the Cassini mission, but now we've got some confirmation that it's sitting there in the upper atmosphere, and it has some particular implications for potentially... Um, biological systems so we're quite excited about that so and, and we're not talking biological systems necessarily on saturn we're talking about in other locations potentially the fact that this stuff's out there yeah that, for sure that, yeah, so yeah. vinyl cyanide um in terrestrial laboratories it's known to polymerize so and that's particularly important for biological systems the lipid bilayers outside our cells so um yeah 
when it rains down on Titan surface and deposits on the surface, there's potential for those polymerization, um, polymerization reactions to occur on the surface and um, lead to some quite interesting Hmm. Yeah, molecules. Hmm. And, I mean, tell us a bit about Titan, because that's the one I think, you know, for me, there's there's Enceladus, there's Europa, there's Titan. I mean, these are the, for me, the big three in terms of interesting stuff. For I sure. Mean, I mean, Titan, tell us about Titan. So Titan is a, well, a moon of Saturn, but yep. it has a large extended atmosphere, which we think kind of resembles that of an early Earth before oxygen was deposited into our atmosphere. So... We use it as a laboratory to look back into the chemical history or chemical evolution of reactions that might occur on Earth. So in this atmosphere, it does um, have contained a lot of different molecules that undergo photolysis from the sunlight and generate larger, more complex molecules so that are protected somewhat when they deposit onto the surface. And the mm. surface has seas, has lakes of liquid hydrocarbons, so it's a very interesting place. Mm. Now... Oh, Dr. Ray's getting excited. Uh, yeah, so I was curious about when you when you try to study this type of chemistry. You've said, you know, you can make more complex molecules. When you do that in a lab, to try to make it... Do you try to make that as real as possible? Do you actually try to have a, a compositional soup that's kind of similar, like the atmosphere in Titan, and then see what happens to the target molecule you're looking at? Or do you just try to pull out one or two molecules and study that individual chemistry at, I assume, are different temperatures and pressures than what we'd have in our atmosphere? So it's pretty much the latter, where we have a simulation cell where we um, replicate the physical conditions of Titan. So we get the pressure and we get the temperature right. In that cell, we then deposit pretty much the starting materials, what are the most abundant species in the atmosphere. So that'd be methane, molecular nitrogen in, um, in Titan's case. We then introduce a radiation source, be it photolysis, light, or actually faster particles that can process those raw materials into the larger molecules that we have seen from Cassini. And then we use laboratory techniques at the synchrotron, such as spectroscopy, to piece out what larger molecules we formed in that cell. Mm. And, 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 yeah, I mean, and how much can you predict from that? I mean, is, is this one of those things where we... I'm trying to get a feel for how this science works. Is it one where... We see it in Cassini, you know, Cassini sees it for us, and then we try and replicate it. Or is it stuff where you go, okay, if these if these four or five things are together, we should see these molecules. And then have we, you know, gone that way and found them as a result? It is. It's the three-pronged approach where mm. we first have our observational data from Cassini or from the telescopes. Then the theoreticians come in with their molecular models, so they put in all the kind of molecules that we see into their computer simulations and yep. then predict what next molecules are out there. Then as an experimental laboratory technician, we come in and put together the observation and the computer models as well to look for sensing signatures that we can then use for the next missions and then the cycle kind of goes around like that. So when one is modelling, well, modelling computational models for com predicting chemistry have become much, much more advanced. Mm -hmm. The outcomes they get are normally based on the inputs, and so they don't get surprises as often because the model may not have captured every detail. Do you ever find instances where, based on the model, you start to make something and you're looking for a model output, but then you find a surprise, a different molecule, a different confirmation, some other chemical product that maybe the model didn't predict? Well, that feeds into what we've seen this week with the vinyl cyanide, okay. where the models suggested that it was there, but even from Cassini, looking for the last 17 years, we couldn't 
definitively say, okay, it's existing in the outer atmosphere until these latest observational techniques are come in with the mm -hmm. um, telescope. We now have upper abundance limits that we can now put back into the models and kind of re-massage all the data that's in there. And even if we change just the concentration of the species just a little bit, down the line, the outputs from those models might change dramatically. So I suspect that's what's going on at the moment. All right, I have one more observation <laughs> question. And forgive me for being naive about this, but I've been always amazed that telescopes can do spectroscopy on a planet far away. And, and it might just be because I read the press release on it, and they say they found the spectroscopic peak for this particular vinyl molecule, where in my mind, it, from a chemistry standpoint, there isn't one peak for a molecule. It's a signature of a lot of things, and I don't think there's that type of resolution in astronomy. So, Or maybe there is. How do they know it was that vinyl molecule, or is there's enough qualifiers there, or is there just more information that doesn't make it out to the media? It's, it's more complicated than a single peak. No, you're right. It's not a single peak, particularly in the microwave spectrum where you have... This is the vinyl molecule tumbling around and it has different rotational peaks, and there can be hundreds of those peaks. So we're looking for you know, um, to get a, a very confident assignment that it's out there, mm. a number of these peaks matching up. So with this telescope, luckily for us, it uses Titan as a, a calibration tool where we have very constant amount of light coming off Titan and we just point it in its direction and collect for a long time. So I suspect over lots and lots of measurements that this telescope's taken that we've managed to piece out each of these um, signatures and definitively say it's final... Cyanide. Now, oh, now wow. Courtney, just, I mean, before we let you go, um, the James Webb Telescope is still scheduled to go up, I think, next year? Is yeah, it? very yeah. exciting. Now, this this is a whole new bucket of worms for you oh, guys. It's going to be I a mean, game changer. Yeah, because, I mean, for people who don't know, this is sort of like, you know, it's Hubble on steroids, big time. <laughs> um, you know, to be fair, the Hubble's almost 25 years old. So, you know, but this, this thing will be able to look at the atmospheres of not only the planets in our solar system, but presumably some of the extrasolar planets around other stars as well. Exoplanets as well. Yeah. That's because it's parked, it's orbiting um, instruments. So it's mm. outside the atmospheric interference, if you like, that yep. this telescope that's land-based in Chile might have. So sitting mm. out there in space, it has a much clearer view of um, these potential atmospheres that may reside further and further out into other solar systems in our galaxy. It's mm. quite exciting. Yeah, it'll be great. And the data, I'm, I'm sure, will be streaming in at a huge rate. Of I'll be people. casting a keen eye to see what's coming yeah, out, no that's doubt. for sure. Courtney, uh, thanks so much for coming back and talking to us, and especially at the moment with the Cassini stuff you know, reaching its final stages. But my suspicion is the work on the data coming from Cassini will be ongoing for quite a long time, I suspect. It'll be a sad day when it finally falls into Saturn, but... Um, we yeah. have a lot of data across the across its time. Yeah, I remember a long time a long time ago on the show, I got very excited about someone launching something almost the size of a bus towards Saturn, <laughs> and that was a long time ago. <laughs> I have to try and find the recording of that episode. I'll probably sound a bit squeaky or something. I don't know, um, but it, it has done such an amazing job, and uh, yeah, it's great, great stuff. Um, We'll get you in again sometime. Maybe we'll talk about the James Webb uh, in a couple of years and see, see what sort of data is That'd coming be fantastic. in from there. So we'll chat to you then. Now, I just wanted to mention something that I thought was really cool, uh, and it's a, it's a pity, actually, the other Dr. Lauren is not here because she's an expert in this area, but um, there's some new simulations that have been done around um, how to do retinal implants. And I didn't know this, but the, the standard way all this stuff is done at the moment is using Euclidean geometry. So, you know, this is X, Y, and Z stuff, so it's nice you know, straight lines and the way you'd see a little chip in a camera. You know, the sort of arrays of, of pixels and so forth, really simple stuff. But 
Um, there's a group from the University of Oregon who've been looking at the possibility of instead of using that XYZ sort of geometry of setting these things up as fractals, right? Now, do you guys want to tell people what a fractal is or you want me to do it? Please online us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to let you go for oh, it. Oh, come on, Dr. Ray, I thought you'd be in for that one. A fractal uh, is something that has the same characteristic geometry at different scales. Indeed. So think of uh, a fern leaf, for example, something as you as you look at the overall fern leaf, it has a certain certain appearance. If you zoom in on one part of it, it actually has the same appearance and you can sort of enlarge that and it just looks like a miniature big fern leaf and then you can keep going and going and going. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's called a fractal pattern. And we see these patterns a lot in nature. We see them in all, all sorts of things, um, from the way a tree grows to the way a fern leaf grows to, anyway, there's you can go on and on and on. And they're pretty cool. And the idea here is that you might be able to actually create one of these systems in the eye that is fractal-based in shape rather than the normal geometry you'd see at the back of a camera or something. And you think, well, who cares? Why would you do that? You know, what, how does that help you? Well, actually, the, the interface, um, essentially, that uh, the neurons in, in, the, in the back of the eye that you have to interface with, they, of course... Uh, they grow in a fractal pattern. So the idea here is that you might be able to do a lot better if you interface with them on their own turf, so to speak, and use this sort of fractal fractal geometry instead of normal Euclidean geometry. And so they've only been simulating this um, to date, but what they've found is that there's a substantial improvement in the way in which the interaction between these two parts of the eye would work if you base things on a fractal pattern instead of the normal pattern. So, they've, I mean, they haven't done any testing, of course. It's very hard to, you know, start doing in people's eyes. But the the goal is to optimise the sort of vision that you would be able to get. And when they do similar simula- simulations of the other versions, the actual standard of vision that you can get out is much lower. So it could be that this is sort of some sort of threshold condition that you can get above if, if you do things in a fractal sense. So if the other Dr. Lauren is listening... <laughs> Throw away the simple stuff and start using fractals. That's the that's the big the big message. Well, you're also seeing that. I mean, part of that Euclidean geometry or using x, y, and z coordinates is just mm. out of how they would have made those sensors is very two dimensional yeah. and thinking. Yeah. And, and to go to that new pattern, they that's that's actually how we fabricate little chips is very much a flat two D experience. So to try to do that that fractal pattern is. Uh, you have to think outside the box because that's not the way things are normally done. Yeah, and, so and in fact, and it's it's something that um, years ago, myself, I was working with a researcher from um, University of Sydney, and we were playing around with how to design new types of optical fibers. And you know, one of the things you you know, a lot of people I think will have experienced is when they see a, one of these optical fibers coiled around in, in a spool, and it's glowing. Right. Now, they shouldn't do that. That means the light's leaking out. And usually the way you get that to happen is you put the wrong colour through the wrong fibre so it all it leaks out. And what we were working on was a fibre that was able to go around tight corners, for example, arteries, and not leak anything out at all. And we actually managed to make a fibre that was, was so good at that that you could wrap it around a pencil which is, you know, getting onto the scale of the heart so that you could actually do these fine fine sort of turns without any of the, the light leaking out. And believe it or not, 
the design of this fiber was based on fractal patterns in the oh, wow. in the glass. So I mean, I find anything to do with fractals, I just think is just just fascinating. And, and when you talk fractals, people get you know they go, "Whoa, fractals! It's like quantum fractals, <laughs> immunology." No fractals. <laughs> so anyway, this this is interesting because our our body, remember, is biological, and just as a tree grows in fractal patterns, you know, parts of our body do too. You look at your 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 arteries in the body and the way they split and so forth as they get to your extremities, they split in fractal patterns quite often so lots of it lots of parts of our bodies do this so the idea of interfacing technology in a fractal way with our bodies to me makes a lot of sense and anyway these guys university of oregon they've only been simulating it but the simulations seem to indicate much better responses than you would get um otherwise so there we go you guys excited about fractals <laughs> we now know what they are you know, I don't, it sort of brought back <laughs> memories from yeah i don't know year 12 maths or something like that but it does remind me of um there was the the story like a few months ago now where they were looking at doing spinach leaves and um using that for vascularization yeah, yeah. in um yeah in, in heart tissue and so it's yeah using nature to sort of yeah i think yeah, just just observing more how yeah, nature does exactly. things not trying mm. to transplant our version of things yes. onto nature which inherently causes problems so yeah Anyway, on that note, uh, it's two weeks until the Radiothon. Very exciting. Uh, we will be firing up for that soon, folks. But for the moment, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It who are waiting. I can see Cam and Matt are very excited over there in the studio. Yep, I just woke Matt up by mentioning his name. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Dr. Lauren, thanks so much for coming in. Dr. Laura. Thank you, Shane. Good to see you guys. And Dr. Ray, good to see you fun. again. Yep. And we'll chat again uh, next week, folks. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.